you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show! Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 396 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of young and old cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. I'm your co-producer, Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. And on this episode, help each other out. Yes, it's true. Help each other out is a growing collective that embraces the idea that being there for others is often easier than we think and that it matters. Kelsey Crow, the founder, joins us to discuss how help each other out is bringing empathy into public spaces and the relationship between empathy and cancer. Survivor Spotlight on New Jersey's own Kelly Davis. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. We like our live and studio guests. Hi, Kelly Davis. Hi, Matthew Zachary. I, I like, like that you're sitting right there and I can see you. You're, 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 you realize you shrugged on the radio. I'm, I'm nice to look at. <laughs> you brought a guest? Um, yes, Jacqueline Petro. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. We've, we've, we've known each other a while now, right? Since the, like, the road trip three years ago or something? 2014. It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. You're still here. <laughs> We're doing something right or wrong. I don't know. What are the, but, well, welcome to the studio. Is this your first time here? It's my first time. Okay. It's my no, second time. Yes, right. Okay. Returning champion. Yes. Anyway, hello, Mallory. Hello. Hello, Laurel. Hello. How are you? I am great. How are you? Good. I understand you guys had a festive Friday evening. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. We so, appreciate that. So, uh, PM360 Magazine is a large pharmaceutical healthcare publishing empire that does a quarterly magazine. And every year they have a uh, industry-driven awards ceremony called the Trailblazers. And I got to go one year, and then Mallory and I went last year, and this was your inaugural. And I, I stress kind of like a litmus test of the, you're still employed here, kind of, <laughs> you made it through the rain. 
Man, experience. you say that like every Monday, and I am going to start getting a little sensitive to that. No, it's it's a it's a it's a, <laughs> at some point it stops. I promise. No, it's it's an experience like none other in the award cancer pharma healthcare thing. It is definitely like none other. It's like that the is... drunken Emmys for eczema. Yes. Wow, that truly just summed the entire evening up. (laughs) That summed up our five hours. It was about five hours. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was. What is it? Drunken Emmys for eczema. Yeah, that's about appropriate for eczema commercials. Um, But very, very fascinating to sit there and and have the opportunity to speak to the people behind said eczema (laughs) commercials. they they enjoy partaking in in libations and frivolity. Oh, that uh, it's like the agency world run amok. Yeah, yep. you're nodding I'm on the radio. <laughs> I really. It's speechless. a you know what it is. It's it's a rite of passage, and and you passed it. Yes, <laughs> I feel like it's become the female rite of passage in the office. Yeah, um, but I think that's okay. yeah. Because Maureen Sweet yeah. went, and then I took you. Yes, and then and then Mallory yeah. took me. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful! I'm excited yep. that you went. Uh, we have um, full on um, marketing promotion for OMG West happening right now in Irvine. We surely do. Yes, it's starting, or that is on October 29th. And so we are promoting that all across our social platforms. And we are so excited. OMG East was just this amazing event. And I am so excited for the West Coast to get involved and to be a part of that community. I love when, like, three or four days after any event we do, social blows up because people finally find their photos. And they start posting them all over the place. It has been the best because I feel like OMG East just hasn't stopped in the best way. It's yeah, like it every single day on all of our socials, we can see everybody posting about it. And it's so exciting to see that. It is. It's a lot of fun. No, I mean, it, it, in, in all the photos you don't know you're in. <laughs> that too. <laughs> you show up And I think photos. the boomerang that we just posted on yeah. uh, Friday, then everybody's tagging themselves in <gasps> it. And it's, it's kind of, I think, like a Where's Waldo. It's an I spy. I like it. And now that you can zoom in on Instagram, you can actually yeah, you find can see yourself. People. It's exactly. so exciting. <laughs> so speaking of West, our uh, opening guest speaker, Emily McDowell, from uh, Emily McDowell Studios and the famous Empathy Cards. Amazing. And that, and that is our theme here for our main segment, um, Empathy and Cancer. Yeah, it's it's an important topic, and it's something that, keeps coming up a lot that people keep asking about well if i had to really think back or look back and analyze the the posts that are most strongly resonant it's what not to say to a cancer patient and it's always like uh everything happens for a reason don't ever tell me that everything happens for a reason you're stronger for this go fuck yourself pretty much yeah yeah can we say that on air this is not an fcc FAA, not FCC. Wow. Yeah. It's the FCC, and yeah. I don't think the FCC is concerned with us at the moment. No, they're so. not, really. So I could, <laughs> I could drop an F-bomb here and there. And so boom, here we go, Monday not a, night. Not a sponsored show. It's okay. Wowzers. Perfectly fine. Yeah, good stuff. But speaking of that, uh, speaking of empathy and what not to do, we had a very um, highly engaged post on our Facebook wall. Yeah, we definitely did. It was about... What to do, and again, what you were saying, more importantly, I think, what not to do when uh, your friend, your young friend is diagnosed with cancer. And I kind of went through uh, just talking about 
exactly that do's and don'ts like say something or anything don't just kind of stand there speechless but then also exactly like you said Matt don't sit there and tell me that everything happens for a reason and I think one other thing that uh, we also posted about this before is talking about like don't tell me that lemon water is going to make it better and don't tell me that like having cinnamon in your tea actually heals me because I think it's incredibly offensive and I think that that was very common in the comments as well like if my doctors haven't given it to me maybe lemon water is not going to be the cure for my cancer and, and but maybe- that's an interesting debate i mean we we can we can um have kelly and jacqueline chime in during the segment about like maybe it's something i didn't know i could consider but is there a way to deliver it i'm playing without, devil's advocate without sounding like i know everything <clears throat> and i'm going to cure you by telling right. you this, I, I met right? a young woman recently through a friend she went to burning man um and uh she's into holism and she she did traditional allopathic western chemotherapy radiation breast cancer uh, but she does coffee enemas, and she does um, uh, uh, I, I sprouted wheat and, and totally hyper-organic. No, Like, she's choosing these things that if you if if you were to say, it, oh, just coffee enema yourself, go fuck yourself. No, but if you were to say it. There it is again. <laughs> that's the only response to that that that, that thing. You, can, you can't say Give anything. Give yourself a coffee enema, and you'll be fine. Yeah. So... There is a is there a way to express that this is something I chose to do, not something I think you should do? Absolutely. I think there is. And I think we've actually been fortunate enough to have a couple of guests on the show in the past who have become very holistic and and have eaten themselves healthy. Yes. If, if that phrase makes any sense. Well, Bailey um, O'Brien comes to mind. We did a show with Bailey O'Brien recently. I think she had melanoma, but she she did not have chemotherapy just just the surgery i think and and the way that some of some of the people that we've been fortunate enough to have on as guests are very open and not very preachy about it which is always great and and i think you can only allow people to take in as much as they're willing to take in agreed i think the biggest um point of that as well is that it is people who are going through it and they're sharing their experiences saying this worked for me maybe it could work for you where this article and another article that we posted was really talking about friends who have never had experience and have never been through it and are just looking online and grasping at anything and are telling them like well have you tried this have you tried that without ever having tried it themselves or saying my great uncle's aunt's cat went off of sugar <laughs> and they were fine. Right. And you're so excited for that cat. Yeah. You know, like that's great news. <laughs> or or but you're that, really not excited or, no, for you're that not. cat. You're, yeah. well. <laughs> I think the one card that Emily McDowell, I think was her first card or her second card, it just said, there's no good card for this. Yeah, that was one of the, I think it's that was for the so first line. right in your face, just enough. And if, if, if I were to have gotten a card like that, I'd be like, you're right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think empathy also just it, it expands so much further beyond just the, the regular cancer diagnosis. And I I think it's something that our guests can speak to later on. But on their website, they don't just talk about illness. They talk about things like fertility yes. and job change. And it, it sort of integrates into our everything that our population touches on. Agreed. So speaking of our guests, they're sitting right here staring at us. So let me do a proper introduction. Returning champion Kelly Davis, diagnosed with leukemia, ALL, at the age of two, 
You look good for four years old. <laughs> and as of this February, she'll be 21 years cancer-free. Kelly's 22 years. 20. Bio. Kelly is heavily involved in many nonprofit oncology organizations, including the Valerie Fund, Can't Make a Ream, and our very own right here, right now, Stupid Cancer. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, super long-term pediatric cancer survivor, Kelly Davis. You're giving us a round of applause. To myself. On the radio. All, that's how highly sh- I think of myself. Yes. As you should. Yeah, you should. She deserves you should. it. should. So 22 years. If it were 21, I would have said that your your leukemia could uh, could vote. And oh, voting's um, 18. Drink. Drink. Your drink, could drink. Drink. Yeah. We drank like we were 21 again Good. this past Valentine's Day. Don't worry. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. So I mean, your your story is resonant because it talks about like what I consider the invisible children of of young adult cancer, that there are nearing 450,000 Americans who had cancer mm-hmm. under 18 that are still under 40 ish that many of whom deal with long-term consequences of being miraculously or somehow cured, a word that I know many take umbrage with. I'm one of them that were diagnosed in college and I'm now 40-ish. But side effects and late effects and the gift that keeps on giving, and it's a very, it's a good conversation to have, but it's a frustrating conversation to have because even still today in 2016, our culture is still caught up on cure. And does it matter that we educate the whole public to know? Or is it okay that they're caught up on this, but we do our best to make sure it sucks as less as possible for the next two-year-old that gets cancer? I think they're going towards a cure. Oh, my bad. <laughs> um, definitely going towards a cure while trying to make it suck a lot less for the next two-year-old well yeah and 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 a lot of i don't know how your parents are probably in their 30s or 40s when you were diagnosed my mom was 20 20s nine my dad was in his late 30s early 40s right so you think about god god you don't want to put yourself in the position of my child has cancer but i have a story about that too yeah so i want (laughs) we want to hear that but it's like at cure her at any cost whatever it takes save my daughter but then where can there be a conversation about, oh, well, we're, at what cost do you want us to save your daughter? At any cost, save our daughter. So t- do Actually, tell. Actually, my mom was telling me, hi, mom, um, a couple weeks ago uh, at the beach that when they did bring me to the hospital or to the doctor, took one good look at me and said, your daughter's sick. She's got leukemia. They took me to <laughs> the hospital and they put me in a hospital room with this 13 years old at the time going through his like second or third time with leukemia, hopped up on morphine, screaming, let me die, let me die. And my parents, who were young-ish, you know, 40-ish and 20, almost 30-ish at the time, never expected this to happen to their kid. So, um, and they're listening to all these kids, like these parents crying, these kids like freaking out, getting like stuck with needles, and they're like horrified. They're like, oh my God, this is my child. So... Um, my parents actually decided no treatment. There was a call to diaphus. Right. So then um, it turns out that when they took my blood test originally to find my diagnosis, that um, uh, they switched the blood test. My name got put on the blood test of the kid who was hopped up on morphine, screaming, oh my God, kill me, kill me. And 
his name got put on my blood test. So when they came back, they said, your daughter's done for, basically. Oh, God. And they're like, why would we, why are we going to put our torture, our child through this if there's only a 20 for, you know, like a 20% chance that she's going to make it? And then they read, you know, and they flipped out. And it was like a two-week battle with the doctors and the hospital. And again, like, child services was called. And they redid the blood test. And they're like, sorry, your daughter's going to be fine. Yeah, that's an oops moment. Oh it was also 1992, so like they didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. Kids were just starting to survive right. leukemia and other, and um, it wasn't until like the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, um, that they did more research with the Philadelphia chromosome. Right. Where I, I met the man who... Um, Mr. Philadelphia? Yeah. Um, <laughs> of cream cheese fame. I dated his grandson, Peter Noll. I dated his grandson. You did really? That's awesome. <laughs> the things you hear on the stupid cancer show. And that was funny. My mom was like, "Your grandfather is this guy?" And he was like, "She almost cried. It was great." Mom, yeah. I'm really embarrassing you right now. I'm really sorry. But you know, that's when like you know the the breakthroughs of the Philadelphia chromosome, and like they found other chromosomal, I guess, defects that are associated with leukemia. So that's one thing they're making it suck a lot less for kids these days. Yeah. But but I think what's fascinating is that um, you know, pediatrics has always been specifically nurturing about mm-hmm. the age group. There was this I I mean it's cultural it's it's congenital like we just we want to take care of our children so mm-hmm. they wrap you in in a wonderful cocoon to make sure that you're distracted and it doesn't hurt and you're brave and you don't and know it's what's going it's on. all about save the children so you really can't deny nor choose what you want to go through yourself right exactly it's very controlled but you were introduced to camp long before lots of other kids with cancer were introduced to camp so talk about that um i was i've been going to camp happy times um the valerie fund is all over new york and um new jersey parts of new york parts of pennsylvania um i my hospital was not involved with the valerie fund i with was hackensack and tomorrow's children here and beyond and everything wonderful people awesome people um one day my mom was watching tv and the camp director emily finkel was on TV, like CNN, some some local news station, not CNN, I forget which one. But um, my mom was watching, and she, you know, heard Millie speak about this wonderful camp, and she was basically on the phone with them a couple days later, like, begging them. They're like, your daughter's too young. And she was like, no, take her. Like, <laughs> she, needs to, she needs to do this. She can't grow up the rest of her life. You know, like, she's not going to remember anything. But what if one day she, it clicks, and she's just like, wow, I'm lost in this world. Right. So they got me in that summer, and... um. I never looked back. But I mean, that's where I met Jacqueline. Yeah, well, yeah. who's sitting next to you, yeah. Jacqueline Petro? Yeah. Hi. So you had AML, acute yes, myelogenous did. leukemia. When I was twelve. Person. Yes. Yep. So you met at camp. Yeah, we did when I was fourteen. Right. Yeah. And it was my first year at camp. Kelly was in my cabin. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was I went to um uh, a um, conference with them uh, called COCA, Children's Oncology Camping camp Association. Association yeah. And, yeah. And it, we went to a session for how camp actually helps the curing process or the after process of cancer and they did like studies of like kids who you know went to camp after or during and then kids who didn't and you know kids were healthier and happier and you know you're sitting here talking about like holistic remedies the one thing they brought up was that these kids were stress-free like you know more stress-free because they had a place to the reason why i bring up holistic is that people are like oh it brings up your immune system and I always say, you know what brings up your immune system? Not 
being stressed. Happiness. <laughs> happiness. Yes. Like when you're happier, you're not, you know, like you're just like everything's just better. And, right. Or like, you know, when you're when you're stressed out, you're or when you're unhappy, you're stressed and your immunity goes down. So they took these kids who were going to camp and and um, uh, they were happier. They had, they had more friends who could um, relate, and relate, stuff. relate yeah. with them. And they had lifelong connections and another family and they were happier and and just better all life span being all that other fun stuff. So you were diagnosed in what, like, was that sixth grade or seventh grade, Jacqueline? I was going actually into high school that year. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not that this is a good time to ever get sick, <laughs> but going to high school is a pretty crappy time. Well, I was going to high school when I met Kelly, but right. when I got sick, I was in seventh grade. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was not a good time. Not well, that's the thing. Was... Like when you're two, three, four, five, six, you know, yeah. your, your peers don't know what's going on and whatever. But when I was you were... just learning how to put bras on. I wasn't hitting puberty yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, and then you got to be were. kidding me. Right, exactly. Here you were going to lose your hair and be yeah. always this ostracized child. and Yeah, exactly. But going back to Kelly, the, the value of community and groups mm-hmm. of people that yeah. get it. And even I'm sure your parents seeing your smiles mm-hmm. made them feel less anxious mm-hmm. and more at peace with what was going on. Yeah. Um, do your parents know each other well now too? Yeah, my parents are still happily married, and my parents know um, Kelly's parents pretty well. We're we're like we're pretty close. Well, it's been what yeah. over a decade, at least yeah. fifteen years since yeah. you first met. That's that's a pretty powerful friendship right there. Yeah. Kelly and I are like sisters, and like yeah. through a lot of I couldn't tell a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen you apart. Like <laughs> life threw a lot of <laughs> obstacles at us, and uh, you know when you have someone to turn to like this, it's yeah. a lot easier to go through. Yeah. So let's talk about our theme here, which is empathy. You know, I, I, things like the, like camp and communities help you bridge that empathy gap that you don't get from the general public. But, you know, when you're that age, high school, mm-hmm. you know, college, you don't get a lot of that from just mm-hmm. the average, healthy, regular, normal high school teenager. Were you stigmatized? Were you bullied? Did, did those things happen to you guys during your teenage years? I was never bullied because my friends and people around me had known. I'm very vocal about it because I am so sick of people going, kids don't get cancer. Who says that? Everyone. Really? When or, actually, have they not I... seen the St. Jude commercials that <laughs> dominate television? <laughs> or like they just don't want to, if it's not your kid, it's not your problem. Uh, yeah. Like that whole thing in there. And they'd just be like, like, put me on like a pistol like oh my god you're so awesome and i'm like it's me so i'm like yeah i'm awesome yeah but so i never really got bullied when i was in grammar school like kindergarten first second grade we do like student of the week and i actually like my camp friends and some kids would be like that girl's bald and they'd be like you're an asshole <laughs> <laughs> so i never really got bullied if anything i had a lot of friends going oh my god cancer camp sounds so awesome how do i get involved oh wow yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kelly's always told me that. I can't skip to the all of her friends want to go. They want all this like free stuff. And, and like, like the stuff, the sure, experience like, and free like, stuff. That's not what the camp's about. It's know, like it's coming not. together and understanding each other <clears throat> and really being there for one or another. They would, or they would meet my friends like Jacqueline or my mm-hmm. friend Alyssa who may she rest in peace passed away a couple years ago. But they'd be like, Oh my god, how do I get friends like that? And I'm like, uh, hang out with me more. Yeah. You don't want to know how no, I meet these yeah. friends. That's the point of entry you don't want to have to get into this <laughs> like club. Like, it's, it's the club that, what, what do you say about it? What is it? Well, the, it's the club you never ask to join, but once you hear your family? Yeah. <laughs> like that. 
So let's talk about that consequence. I, I don't think it could be heard enough that the average person, I mean, our, our listeners are largely in our community that, that know this, they nod our heads when we talk, but this idea of cure and, and end and you're done and go home, when you're younger, it's very different. Would you be willing to share with us some of the issues you guys are dealing with as a consequence of being alive today, thankfully? I think Jack can cover that better than me. <laughs> I, I got out. I only have, like, bone issues. Um, well, I have a very, when I was going through my cancer treatment, a very complicated um, cancer treatment. And I actually I was in a coma for four, three months. And then I was in rehab for a month after that. And um, because I was went through that long track during my second treatment and my cancer treatment, my chemotherapy treatment, I was able to meet three of my best friends um, at the Valerie Bunce Clinic um, that does Camp Happy Times. And we would see each other every other day to receive platelets or some sort of blood um, transfusions in the hospital. And we spent pretty much like a whole school day together. And we became extremely close. And um, the following year, they were all gone. And I can't tell you how much over the years, like that's transformed me as a person that's changed me. And by the time they were all gone, I was in camp with Kelly and I was already a changed person. I was insecure. I was uncomfortable with myself with my best friends. They were, they all died. I felt like I had my survivor's guilt was like weighing down on my shoulders. It was like, I was like buried, like a million bucks were on top of me. And it was, it was absolutely awful because I knew in the back of my head, I should have been dead too. Like, and it was just, I didn't, I couldn't contemplate why I survived the coma and the brain infection and my cancer while my best friends were gone. And then in 2007, there was a mix up with my blood, like kind of Kelly's mix up. You'd be surprised how many times hospitals rubbing do off this on stuff. each other way too much there. <laughs> they, they don't talk about it, but they do it a lot. <laughs> There was there was a mix up with my blood. Um, they the first what happened was I was in the emergency room. So I was at blind camp. I lost my vision, my sight. I mean my vision and my hearing from my cancer treatment. And I was I was at blind camp because I was you know just a camp. And um, the nurse was seeing all these bruises on me, and I was like, well, you know what? I bruise easily. It's not a big deal. And she was worried that I had cancer again, so she sent me to the ER. And there was a boy there that turned out to be really sick, but I got his blood count instead. And my my white <clears throat> blood counts were... We need to do like a whole show on the cancer mix-ups. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my, my, my white counts were like over the top. And parents, they told me I relapsed with my AML. And that was July 14th, 2007. I told one person at Camp Happy Times, and that was our best friend, Kelly, my best friend's friend, Alyssa. And... You know, she knew, and she completely flipped out. And But it wasn't me. But then the following year, Alyssa relapsed. And, you know, like, there's, like, still the guilt, like, you know, I was told I relapsed first, but then she relapsed the following year. And, like, there's, like, all these, like, weird coincidences that happen and, like, these, like, weird guilty things that, like, go on in your head. And it's kind of, like, like, it's just it doesn't really fit into place, but there's like all these like tiny puzzle pieces and it's just right. like, and like sometimes she's one like, yes, why? And it's just like, and like Kelly in all of this, like has been like that person for me. It's like 
keep me sane and keep me like happy and keep me wacky and like, keep me, drunk, like let's be honest. <laughs> keep me like laughing and smiling because like in all honesty like i probably would have fallen apart a million times over again because i really just i can't find sense in a lot of it there's just so much that's been weighing down on my shoulders over the past couple of years because i really because you're still here and they're not yeah i really i really just don't understand how when i had like a, a like a singular like two percent chance in being here like multiple times with my heart and my brain and my my lungs and my cancer and it's just like why on earth am i still here and it's just it's very confusing and i think a lot of people who cope with cancer especially as a young adult when the battle is so difficult experience that survivors go whether it's as crazy as my experience or as small and simple as a different experience it's definitely really hard to contemplate like why and then but you need like that friend like that person who like reminds you like yo snap out of it yeah like it's all good like you're here because you're here like not because like don't let people like with that empathy remind you like say like because it's meant to be like those words you were saying before like that stuff just pissed me off right yeah it doesn't work but like you just need that person to like talk to you and catch you when you fall at the memorial service which that person was kelly she caught me when i was falling and like you just like need that one person to like be there and once you like find that person that person kind of sticks and you like stick to each other like peanut butter and jelly and you know so it's safe to say you're never getting rid of each other yeah i really think like that we like we've been through thick and thin and we really understand each other like you wouldn't believe well and... it's so important that you you have each other yeah and we we've done numerous shows and workshops on survivor guilt and yeah. it, it tends to never go away it's really just how you have to process it and manage it mm-hmm. to, to just get by we've lost so many people here in the organization Definitely. on the show per- personally professionally in my family like why am i still here that that's a question mm-hmm. most of us always ask and and the, the how difficult do you want the answer to be is really the <laughs> question you have to answer so i'm really glad that you guys are here um we're going to kick off to the news and bring on our segment but empathy is really what this is about we'll bring you back on you can chime in during the uh during the main <laughs> segment here but um Kelly Davis and uh, Jacqueline Petro. Thank you so much for just chilling out with us here. You're not going anywhere. So with that said, it is now time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Stupid Cancer does a whole lot of awesome things, and here's what's happening now. The OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults started in 2008. In eight years, 14 summits have brought together more than 6,000 people. On October 29th, join the young adult cancer community in Irvine, California. OMG West is all about community. Learn more at omgsummit.org. Join us for a different kind of social mixer. No pressure, no judgments, no stigma. Best of all, no sitting around in a circle sharing your feelings. Find a meetup in your area at events.stupidcancer.org or host your own meetup. Just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Okay, we have a meetup happening in Dallas, Texas and in Las Vegas, Nevada. We want to see how you get busy living. So follow Stupid Cancer on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to tag us at Stupid Cancer. Join the movement. Show how you get busy living in your stupid cancer gear. Shop at stupidcancerstore.org. You know, we've been doing the show here now for about 10 years, and we want to hear more from you, our listeners. So tell us what you'd like to hear. Fill out our survey at stupidcancer.org slash podcast survey and get 15% off in the Stupid Cancer Store. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Our main segment features Kelsey Crow. She has a PhD from UC Berkeley and teaches social work at California State University. She authored the upcoming book, There is No Good Card for This, and founded the organization Help Each Other Out. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Kelsey Crow. Hello, Kelsey. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You uh, came overwhelmingly recommended by our dear friend, Emily McDowell. I love Emily, <laughs> as do many people. Yes, we are huge fans of each other, and um, it's we. Th- this entire show is driven by uh, our promotion of her speaking at our West Coast conference and empathy in cancer. And um, I remember when she first burst onto the scene with her card. There's no good card for this, and I, I, I feel that that embodies what is right and wrong with everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you know her? Well, I have been working with Help Each Other Out for a couple of years and working on a book and doing empathy workshops and doing public art exhibits on being there. So I've been engaged in this work for a while. And when Emily's cards came out and went viral last year, everyone was like sending me Facebook posts and emails and saying, you have to connect, you have to connect. And through a mutual friend, we did. And it was so clear that we both wanted to achieve the same thing with a book on empathy and we connected and it's, it's been great. So I would ask you, why did you call it help each other out? But that seems self-serving. It's quite obvious why you call it help each other out. (laughs) Um, It it, it seems like this is uh, giving back as part of your DNA is where did you study? Uh, I, you know, I studied local politics and social policy the reason for doing this work is completely personal. Um, my training helped me do the research, but it's purely motivated for personal reasons. Did uh, something happen in your life that caused this level of altruism, or is it yeah, just good parenting? I mean, a, a few things. I was, you know, I was shying away from one too many friends with something horrible happening to them, whether that was illness or loss, you name it. I didn't know what to do or say. And a lot of people might have that experience and then move on. And I couldn't move on. I started feeling terribly about it. And the reason that I felt terribly about it was because I had a very uh, isolated upbringing um, myself. And when I lost my mother when I was 19 to mental illness, there were very, very few people to step in and help. And I had And there are no rituals of mourning on how to acknowledge the loss of the mind and the loss of that relationship in that kind of way. So I suffered alone, I have to say, and I felt a lot of shame about my needs for a place to go for the holidays or for an acknowledgement of the relationship that I did have for my mom. And what I experienced, I think, is just a 
exaggerated form of what all of us experience in our shitstorms, which is loneliness, isolation, fear that we're a burden. And after I kept shying away, I realized I know it's important, but that doesn't mean I know what to do or say. And I decided to do something about it. And I started researching um, through an extensive online survey what works and what doesn't and started building some program around this work and doing empathy workshops through my learning in the course of connecting with so many people about how to be there for others. And it's changed me incredibly. Have you found that it's a nature nurture thing? I find it's nurture. I would say it's 90% nurture. So people, even though they may have been born with an empathy gene, often need to know how to channel it for good? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, I grew up, you know, in New York City, and I'm a Sagittarius, not two good ingredients for being empathetic. (laughs) (laughs) And so I like really needed some undoing in terms of how I approached people and their problems, their life problems. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. That's what I would say. What would you say has been um, the most enlightening finding in your history of, of working in this how much people do not want your opinion. Because <laughs> I believe a lot in my opinions. We all do. <laughs> um, but it's so not helpful. And that's not the way we approach life in every other context. We want to be problem solvers. We're contributing with our ideas, with our insights. But the most that we can do in terms of being there for somebody in their difficult time is giving them space to come up with their own ideas, with their own understanding of what they're going through and just supporting them in that process. Let me flip the coin a bit too, because I remember when I was, I was, I mean, we have guests on the show that were diagnosed in the nineties. So everything kind of sucked back then in general, but from a, from a purpose of principle, you know, yes, we don't want to hear your opinion, but is it fair on our end, on on the in our case, the cancer patients' end, to say you've had it so good your whole life? What's wrong with you? You know, you have no right to. You know, like it, how how can we fault somebody for not knowing what it is? You know, just because you didn't have cancer, I shouldn't feel good for you. How do you mean people feel? To say some more, I am also a cancer survivor, All by right. the way. All right, here's a good example. Um, I won't say who, but uh, we have a, a community member um, who the worst thing that ever happened to her in her life was her grandma died. Mm-hmm. And she was obviously very shaken by this. It was the first time in her life that something terrible happened to her. And she was very verbal about this is the worst thing ever. And then people who've had it worse by comparison were like, oh, you have no idea how bad it can be. But is that really our job to level set people who've never had our experiences? And is that the flip side of don't give me your opinion? Right. I would say even more than the flip side, it embodies the credo, don't give your opinion. There's this um, thing I talk about in the book called all about me syndrome. (laughs) Giving your opinion is a big piece of that, and with that are comparisons. So we're so tempted to compare someone else's situation with our own or with somebody else who's been through something similar. And if, for example, you've been through cancer and you feel that that was a far worse experience than somebody who's lost their grandparent, 
you may feel it helpful to offer the perspective, it could be worse. <laughs> but comparing anybody's difficult situation to somebody else's is never, ever the way to go. And we don't know what could be worse or what could be better. Any insight that somebody comes to about how they feel about their situation, right? We've got people in the cancer community who call it a gift. People who say, it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. I won't be one of those people. There's research that says if you can find meaning out of these things that have happened to you, you will cope better. You will be happier for it. There's reason that we all want people to have some perspective on their disease. But that's not an insight that somebody can hand to you in an offhanded comment about how things could be worse or how this could be a gift or how to look at this in a different light. That insight has to come solely from within. And when it does, big props to you. And well, if it doesn't, it doesn't. That's all. No, and, and well said. And, and it's always interesting when we see infighting within the cancer community about people who think they had it better or worse than other people. And there's there is massive debate around even the word survivor and, Absolutely. and the word cure and the word yeah. survivorship and the word military terms. You know, don't tell me I fought cancer because if I die, it means I lost. Right. Like, right. This is yeah. semantic embattlement. Uh, of the highest order that goes on within its own, within your, your own community. Yeah, there's a yardstick for how we're supposed to approach this disease, understand this disease. And anytime that yardstick comes out, it's, we feel it's an opportunity to measure us against something else and measure our experience. And it's a really crappy feeling. So it's really best to avoid the yardstick. I'm on the board of Bay Area Young Survivors for young women with breast cancer. And we take in women who are stage zero and women with metastatic disease. And we have to be very clear that if you're scared, you're scared. You're scared. And that's what matters. And of course, there's a place to have conversation for people with metastatic disease. There's a place, like for me, to have conversation about having recurrence. There's a place uh, and a community for that. But at its essence, the fear of the unknown and of this ravaged disease belongs to any of us who are brushed against it. And that's the story. So we all within our communities, or if you're in the community of loss, or if you're in the community of uh, financial hardship, you have to be so careful with that yardstick that we pull out to compare our situations. It's never helpful. I'm not sure if you're aware, but we had uh, Megan and Lori from Bayes oh, I know. on yeah. the show, yeah. and we talk about how can you possibly and the, what you mentioned was very specifically discussed is when you're in a room, especially with a disease specific like breast cancer, where you can have the, you know, it's stage zero or it's metastatic, you know, a triple negative, everything. Um, how do you level set when the only thing in common is anger? When you say how do you level set, what do you, can you tell me more what you mean? Yes, how can you make the case that we're all here on the same level? Mm. You mean for those people, how do you kind of put in check 
somebody who is comparing their situation or Precisely. saying it worse. Precisely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think you just say you can't be judgmental. You cannot judge. I have to say too, that my experience like with Bayes and we have a very active listserv of about 400 women with all stages of disease, the respect for people's experience is tremendous. And I know it's out there that people will pull out that yardstick, but I barely see it. And I'm on my share of, you know, groups around this to the person that does, it absolutely deserves a check. And, and if that person can't hold it, if they can't hold someone else's experience that research would say is not likely to be as bad, <laughs> um, they probably don't belong in a conversation that's trying to support cancer patients. Right. So you mentioned that you are a survivor yourself. How, mm -hmm. how is it for you to enter this community? Well, well, let me ask you, let me backstep. Were you doing this work prior to your diagnosis? Well, the irony was I was doing it on the sides of a big career in government, actually, and and then having a kid. So I was very uh, devoted to this mission, but I was still filling it in on the margins of my life. And then four years ago, I got my first diagnosis of breast cancer and had to, of course, kind of step back and pull back from my career. And what stepped into my life were all of these kind gestures from people. And I had no idea how they knew what to do. <laughs> but it was just a divine providence telling me this is the kind of love that you have to share in your work because I didn't know to do these things. Other people do know. I also experienced the rearranging of my address book when some people did not show up. So it was a reckoning for me. Am I going to pursue this work full throttle or not? And I decided to do it. And that's when I created, you know, the empathy workshops and these um, what we call public art exhibits on being there, which are these neighborhood level installations of crowdsourcing of kind gestures that get you through difficult times. And they're really powerful. Uh, and Stanford um, Department of Medicine evaluated that campaign for its impact on empathy. Uh, we, you know, have tried, I've done a number of different things to get a community awareness about how we can be there for each other in small ways. Um, my breast cancer experience gave me not only the license, but the expectation that I do that. You know, Kelsey, you said something very elegantly that I don't think I'd have the capability of saying, which is something along the lines of you had to rearrange your address book. And I would have just mm -hmm. said, you know, slaughter the people that left me. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Having no empathy yeah. for that whatsoever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, you know, the amazing part about the empathy, about the empathy workshop that I do and the book goes into this is the powerful conversation that opens up the workshop, which is where you go in a pair and you talk about a time that you shied away. And people share their regrets for letting people down. And it is such a profound, profound conversation. We all have so much shame, and I do too, for times that we weren't there for others. Not because somebody expected us to be, but because we wanted to be and we didn't. 
And I, there are people that I don't forgive for not showing up. But if I'm going to forgive myself, there are a whole lot of people that I have to forgive too. Very, very well put. What would you say the general response is to, I would say, a first-timer who learns that they can take advantage of what you're offering, these empathy boot camps? I would imagine it's incredibly delicate to open that door to the first-timers. Mm-hmm. I say it's a way to build deeper connection uh, and to learn how to give and receive help. Uh, it's, it hasn't been hard to motivate people to come. It's a problem that many of us, if not all of us, <laughs> can relate to. You have a blog here called Advice is Highly Toxic Material to be Handled with Care. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the um, um, Henry Alford's book, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? It, it's such a, such a polite way of saying fuck off. Yeah, and it, yeah. Does, does, does it ever become acceptable to, to let anger have its place and to win in certain cases? Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm, um, well, anger at the person Anger it's, in any form. Oh, well, I'm, I'm at, right now, today, I'm grappling with this question of anger. Uh, today is a very sad day. Um, a woman, a board member, an advisory board member for Help Each Other Out, who I knew, um, irrespective of this project, uh, she and I are friends, and she died of cancer today, of the same cancer that I have. And uh, she got her recurrence uh, at the same time that I did. And there's a lot of people honoring and expressing beauty for the way that she has embraced this stage of her life. And it has been incredible to behold. And it's not where I have gone. <laughs> right. Um, and I definitely feel fury. I feel a lot of fury. And the nature of the community she is in is one that speaks in very wholesome, flowery, generous terms about the universe and what it does. And I'm feeling the universe is kind of a cruel place today. <laughs> and I'm not feeling the bounty I'm feeling the awe for what Michelle has done, the way she has done this, but I am not feeling okay. So I think there's a total place for anger, and I am so thankful for people like Emily who can name that anger in such a clear-eyed way. It's not my forte, but I need it, and I'm so grateful for it. So for fuck cancer, stupid cancer, all of that, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's bring it fucking on. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, memorializing your friend. Very unfortunate, but we, in our line of work, we have miracles <clears throat> and tragedies every day. And it's... Uh, it's the walk. It's, it's the left foot, right foot walk. That's what it is. You got to own it. And um, I appreciate your, your willingness to share that with us on the show tonight. Um, but uh, how you were able to frame it <laughs> without starting 
out like you I wanted you to channel your inner what you grew up in Queens or something your your inner New Yorker I know is, where'd is, she go where, where is that person <laughs> I'm waiting for that person to burst out of your chest like an alien but you you've done a really good job of, of keeping it at bay you know so I mean it's it is the sad truth of what we do and and how do you again I, I always go back to the word level set you know our 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 baseline of emotions and how do we hold ourselves up to the to these standards um, do you... I can tell you where I do feel very clear-eyed anger. Please do. It's that people in the difficult time are expected to ask. I feel very angry about that. So when I lost my mom to mental illness and I had nobody, no place to live, no fridge to raid, ever, you know, I was very much on my own. And I had to remind a 21-year-old, hey, I would love an invitation for Thanksgiving, <laughs> things like that. And I took it upon myself that I was some horrible, horrible, deep down, awful person because I needed to ask. That feeling of being a burden is so significant when we go through any of life's shitstorms. And I don't want anybody to feel that way, ever. We have to manage our asks. We have to understand those impacts. But we as a culture, as a society, need to do such a better job of helping each other show up. That's the problem. It's not learning how to ask. And if I was told to read one more self-help book about <laughs> empowering myself Instead of empowering our culture, I was going to scream. Don't ever come to my office. It's littered with books about self-help. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> everyone sends me a book every week that like six books show up like about, here's my story about self-help. Okay. <laughs> you, know, you know, George Carlin has a really funny bit about self-help books aren't really self-help. It's just help. Right. <laughs> there's nothing self about it. It's just your help. There's no self. It's just, it's help. It's not self-help. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, you mentioned before... Um, it was cursory, but I want to focus on it, that Stanford uh, helps you measure the yeah. outcomes. That is so important and so underutilized in the mental health space, especially yes. in the nonprofit sector. You don't just want to be something that's nice to have. You want to be able to prove that it helps this way. Can you talk yeah. about that? Sure, sure. You know, um, we didn't even anticipate to measure any outcomes from our campaigns. And I'll just describe the campaign a little bit. So we partner with a nonprofit, like with Bayes, or uh, the Dinner Party, which is for young people who've lost somebody, and it's very often to cancer, uh, who, and we have portraits of this individual who's gone through a loss. They're very stunning portraits. They're beautiful. And I have a very high-level uh, team of designers that work on this. And they describe a gesture that got them through their difficult time. And the posters are adopted by every business in a neighborhood corridor. And we have what are called gesture cards, which are prompts that ask you, what was something a neighbor did for me, a stranger did for me, a friend that I hadn't heard from in years, my good friend, and what doesn't work for me, these kinds of prompts. People in cafes, in restaurants, in businesses fill out these cards and they're placed by the business owners up along with the posters 
to create a big public demonstration, a public art exhibit on being there. And it's adopted for a week. And we've done it in six neighborhoods in San Francisco. We've done it in the hospital lobby at UCSF. And we've done it in New York City, too, in Brooklyn. And uh, someone had found out about this campaign and said that the research on stigma shows that if you can tell the story of a hardship through one person's perspective, as opposed to numbers, <laughs> just tell one person's story, you can activate a level of compassion that you may not have had about that issue before. So they started doing a baseline in the neighborhood before we implemented our campaigns and after and did a random survey um, of people who'd seen it. And you couldn't, you can't miss these campaigns. And found that it made people feel less awkward around illness, more likely to do something. And um, I forget what their proxy was for empathy, but more empathetic. It was really powerful. It was a pilot study. You know, you have to do more to make it even more robust. And it's um, on my website. I'll be posting uh, where it's uh, submitted, but um, the article submitted. But yeah, that was a great achievement and it just validates everything to a much higher standard than mm -hmm. currently exists now and and yes we, we tend to consider what we do with stupid cancer is you know we, we use all the fancy words like survivorship and quality of life but we try to make it suck less yeah and, <laughs> and how do you build a science around making it suck less and yes. and that's what we're doing how do you make it suck less science that's it so Kudos to you for doing that. No, I honestly think, I mean, this is such a public health problem, and we need major government dollars and philanthropic dollars in all of our invested in all of our capacities to be there for each other. Because the amount of mental health issues we all suffer because of the isolation we experience in shit times like cancer, it, it it's 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 inconceivable what a kind of cost savings we can have and easier life, make life suck less, make life better. I think that should be our band name. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a few minutes left, but I want to talk about your book because again, we, we were joking about everyone has a book, but this is a different kind of book. Okay. It is. Well, from other books. Well, it's not a self-help book. Right. No. Or, or just a help book. Is that a help help book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the book is called, based on one of Emily's cards, there's no good card for this, What to Do and Say When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to the People You Love. And it's based on the empathy boot camps that I do. kind of goes through the same process of exploration about why we shy away, what are some mantras and touchstones that we can hold on to when we're afraid to be there for other people. And then tactically, like on a practical level, what does that look like? What can you do? What can you say? It's super digestible, practical. It's funny, which I love because it's such a daunting topic. So we make it relatable. And I think people actually would look forward to reading it. It's not a um, preachy book at all. And the best part is Emily's incredible illustrations. They're just awesome. So it's it's such a, I think this book is such an homage for all that we know in the cancer land, which is 
being in need sucks. And wouldn't it be nice if people knew what to do and say? Right. The, the, uh, the Yelp for what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you have a sense of humor with this because it's such an incredibly intense, emotional, anything, all of it is, is there's nothing but seriousness about this, but you have to have a sense of humor about it. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, there are, lot, there are other books out there on how to give comfort, and a couple of them have been real like beacons for me and my work, and I just adore um, the authors so much and what they did. But I needed something a lot more digestible, a lot very practical, do's and don'ts, and funny, because it is, it is a bummer. Right. So what did we learn today? Our new band name is... <laughs> <laughs> make life suck less, yes. right? Make, let's make it suck. The, make life suck less on the suckinators or something like that. Right, right, right. <laughs> Empathy cards. I got, uh, going back to that, there was no good card for this. Again, how we started the segment. When I first met Emily, that was the card that I was introduced to her through. Uh-huh. I was like, man, wouldn't it have been nice if I got this 20 years ago? Yeah, you know. Then I mean, for what you went through at the time that you went through it, I can't. I can't imagine. Well, again, we tend to let the '90s go for sucking for everyone, uh-huh. so we kind of just that—that's a wash at this point uh-huh. now. Uh-huh. But this notion of how can you make it suck less is let's tell, you know, someone had once told me like there are people who didn't have cancer that have it worse than you. Like, yeah, I don't need to hear that right now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things yeah. not to say, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, went... well that definitely is top on the list. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that begins with at least. Yeah, yeah. Don't, that's, another, that's your next book. Don't start a sentence with at least. Right, right. <laughs> that could have been the title and all you need to read. <laughs> I just like advice is toxic. That that alone, that's, that should be your hashtag, advice is toxic. Yeah, yeah, Love yeah, it. yeah. Well, your website is helpeachotherout.com. And yeah, we've, we've changed it to helpeachotherout.org. We got that domain, which oh, is nice. Oh, good for you. Yeah. That, that's that, that's a starting a charity. I usually mm-hmm. I usually advise against it, but I think you're doing it right. So go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> of course, you need my seal of approval, of course. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, congratulations on um, – Is it, all right, so let's talk about – is it okay to say congratulations on surviving stupid cancer? Well, it's been an awesome experience. You're a delight to talk to. I am um, very proud of what you're doing. I think it's incredibly important. No one is truly, as you pointed out so eloquently, addressing mental health the way it needs to be done in this country in general, but let alone through situations that you didn't ask to get thrown into, like cancer. Well, thank you. Thank you, yeah. Any, Likewise. Any final thoughts? Like I, we, we typically ask our guests, what would you like to tell the next you? So if you met you from X years ago, what would you like that person to know that you know now? It's easier to receive care because of the work that you've done. That's what I'd like. There you go. Thank like you so much for this opportunity. Kelsey Crow, founder of Help Each Other Out. Thank you so much for joining us and take care. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So let's go back to the the in studio guests, Kelly and Jacqueline. Um, how do you feel about that interview? Did that resonate with you? Do you oh, you know what? I gotta, there you go. Um, did you feel 
well, we, we, we did briefly touch upon this during the opening uh, interview around, do you feel like you were given the right kind of empathy? And even here we are X dozen years later, do you still feel like you're stigmatized or scrutinized, even though you've been friends forever and you're part of the stupid cancer community? Um, from each other or just? In general. <laughs> I don't think, well, I don't think we as friends stigmatize each other. I, do you know my family? Um, they put me on the yardstick a lot. Um, and to kind of, <clears throat> when I'm struggling with something from a complication from my cancer treatment, whether it's big or small, um, they try to make it seem smaller. And it's frustrating for me. It's just like, why can't you let me just be annoyed with it? Like, right. just let me be upset with it. I, you know, like, this is because of my treatment. I did like the yardstick, you know, reference. Um, my family, they're um, uh, pretty open. Not open. I don't, I don't I have no words today. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if I ever have an issue, you know, they, they've spoken to me about it. Um, as I've gotten older, you know, kind of been more on my own because it's just stuff that I don't have to ask mommy and daddy what happened anymore. Right. But definitely from outsiders, I actually, not so much really from stupid cancer, but people who I meet on the streets, well, like not on the streets, I'm not going to people be like, hey, I had cancer. <laughs> on the streets. <laughs> you, stranger over there, pay attention to me. Um, but uh, like if I tell someone, like I, I bartend, if I tell a bar guest, they'll be like, you know, my bar regulars, all I have hip and knee issues. So long-term side effects from vincristine and prednisone. Right. Thanks. And I'll, like, be limping around, and I'll be hurt, and they'll be like, you know, you had cancer. That should be the worst thing that ever happened to you. They don't say that, but, like, you know, they're, like... It's kind of like what they people, mean. They're alluding to it. Yeah. Like, people, like, some people, not all people, but some people around me are just like, couldn't that just be the worst thing to happen to you? And I'm just like, nah, not, not, <laughs> not, not really. Exactly. I like the idea of the um, the empathy workshops. We should look at maybe putting one together here as a pilot. Yeah, definitely. Definitely right. sounds something that I would love to see at a cancer con next year. It's like anger management without the <laughs> anger. I don't know. Can we get punching bags in yeah, there? Yeah, right, too? right. <laughs> or kickboxing. I once went to this. Um, it was an. It was a. You know what? It was like a, like a grief management um, uh, workshop in the late nineties that I went to maybe three or four years out and they did it. It was, you had to like break things in a room for like an hour mm -hmm. and you had to shadow glass bottles, you were goggles. You had to like beat a drum. You had to like with a sledgehammer. It was, it was total like aggression therapy. And it's, it was, they gave you permission to be as riled up and angry as possible with, with safety precautions, obviously clearly this would not be that. <laughs> but I can't help but think that'd be an interesting way to figure out how do we channel the uh, think, where it's okay to be angry sometimes. I think it would be a good idea because, like, again, people like that yardstick. People don't want you. People don't expect you to be angry. They expect you to be like, "I'm here. I'm alive." Yeah. And you, smell the roses. It is okay to be angry and pissed off and frustrated, and just as much as it is okay to be happy and have the mentality of like, "Oh, I'm here." Yeah. And there's also that word that's used a lot for me, like inspiration and hero, and then. Because those words are used so commonly when they hear cancer survivor, it's like I'm not allowed to be angry or get pissed off. And right. it's very <clears throat> difficult to just be real around people sometimes. Exactly. And it just becomes much more challenging. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Now, I want to know what some of them, uh, 
you earlier today you said preventative measures that could have prevent cancer. What are some of the um, uh, responses you've gotten? Because I, I once had someone tell me if I never got the polio vaccination, I would have never gotten cancer. <laughs> I would say growing up on Staten Island may have had something to do with it, but my cancer was congenital, so I, I can't yell at anybody except DNA. Although Staten Island did have the highest incidence of, of asthma in children for 30 years. I, I mean, it's Staten Island. Yeah, Staten Island, yeah. Well, because it had the largest garbage dump garbage dump in the country it's for Staten 40 Island. years. It's Staten Island, yeah. <laughs> Proud Staten Islander. Wow. All right. Well, with that said, I think that was a great show. Empathy and cancer. Yeah. Two great tastes that taste great together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I said it. And with that, it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show, the 396th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Kelly Davis, Jacqueline Petro, and Kelsey Crow of HelpEachOtherOut.com or .org. Good for her. 501c3. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at StupidCancer.org. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, on behalf of the whole team here at The Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Goodbye, folks.